Welcome to this extended version of the Orthodox Ethos Podcast. Today we will be addressing a most important topic, St. Nicodemus the Hagurite, the rudder or pedalion, the collection of canons of the Orthodox Church, and the reception of the heterodox into the Church. We will look at the correspondence between St. Nicodemus, the Kolivadi's fathers, and Dorotheus Vulismas. This podcast was originally recorded in February of 2022. Thank you for joining us, and God bless you. God bless you and welcome. Glad you're joining us. This is an, one of my most important topics for me personally, something I spent a long time researching and looking into, uh, the question of the reception, of course, of converts, the question of baptism, the question of the boundaries of the church, something I've spent literally 30 years since I walked into the Orthodox Church. It's been an issue that's somewhat forced on us as converts, but also, in, in my case, it's been... Uh, for a variety of reasons, by God's providence, something that's always before me and is a, is dear to my heart. So tonight, this is a for me, this is a very important topic. I hope all of you pay close attention, even those who are not well informed or, or knowledgeable about the ins and outs. You, uh, if you're patient and you <clears throat> come back again and again, you'll see just how important these are. This is the equivalent. This whole question of the boundaries of the church and the reception of converts is equivalent in our day to the great theological, uh, Christological uh, controversies of the 4th century, 5th century, 6th century, iconoclast uh, uh, period, this is a threat and a challenge to the church, the question of um, contemporary ecumenism, the panheresy of ecumenism, and all that these various theories bring is a challenge, if not, uh, we could say even worse, a greater challenge than those ancient heresies, uh, for a variety of reasons, because of the uh, situation in the world today, the spiritual condition of Christians, it even poses a greater threat than any other heresy in the history of the church. So before we get off on a tangent, let's jump right in. Let's uh, put on the screen here our uh, slides. Let's go back to the beginning. Sorry about that. And here we are, St. Nicodemus, of course, on the left, the rudder and the reception of the heterodox, a look at the correspondence between the Kolivadi's fathers and Dorotheus Vulismas. We're going to explain the Kolivadi's fathers. Who, are, who is Dorotheus Vulismas? Who is St. Nicodemus? We'll start there. Uh, so if you have zero knowledge of this topic, if you're patient and pay attention, you will uh, learn a lot tonight. So St. Nicodemus, of course, for all of us who love him uh, and revere him, uh, there are so many reasons to do that. Uh, we're going to be talking about this particular controversy that's come out in the last couple of years. But before we do that, we'll get into life. But this is the particular controversy that's been brought out first in Greece and in Greek and now in English because of a translation of, of, of a document by Theodore Iango and claims by Theodore Iango. He's a professor of canon law uh, in the pastoral theology department at the University of Thessaloniki. That's where I studied, did my undergraduate, graduate and master's degrees and uh, had opportunity to frequent the office of the, Dr. Yangu a few times during my undergraduate, especially. Uh, I was in the theological department, so I didn't spend much time there. 
And these were restated in a uh, book review of my book uh, by Father John Cox on Orthodox and Heterodoxy, which I'll bring up on the screen just so uh, this was the review that uh, was written. It's quite some time now. I've re I read it actually quite a, several months after it was issued. And I've been now it's what, four, four years going on four years. I never responded to this, but we're beginning our response tonight. And uh, if you go down, he's got a lot of different sections here in his uh, critique. Uh, the one we're interested in is this one right here, St. Nicodemus and the Rudder. That's the section we're going to be talking about. We're not going to get into any other topics, only this section tonight. And that's why I'm calling this part one, because I'm sure we'll have to return again and again to these issues, very important issues for our church today. So this is St. Nicodemus and the Rudder. He's examining this pretty much, it seems like, based almost entirely on the... Um, uh, ideas and the work of Theodore Yangu, uh, who is, again, a professor of canon law at the University of Thessaloniki, very involved uh, on a variety of levels in uh, pan-Orthodox, but also in ecumenical dialogues, ecumenical uh, in, uh, exchanges, uh, but also very involved on a pan-Orthodox level for the ecumenical patriarchate. And he's from the Church of Cy Cyprus. He's a Cypriot. He's uh, I think been in Thessaloniki for quite some time, for most of his probably most of his life. Uh, but in any case, uh, that's the uh, original uh, for me, at least. That's the starting point here in this uh, discussion. And then, in addition to this, he cites this uh, translation of uh, Dr. Yangu's uh, one of Dr. Yangu's papers. He actually gave quite a number of. Um, he gave quite a number of um, speeches over the years. We've been hearing about this in Greece, this idea that he has uh, concerning uh, St. Nicodemus for quite some time. And this actually is not particularly on uh, just St. Nicodemus and uh, uh, the canonist uh, Christophoros. It's actually a response to Metropolitan Herodotus Vlakos. It's written, uh, I think, in, I'm going to be, I think it's in 2016, I want to say, right around the time of the uh, council in Crete. And it's so it's actually the only really the, the beginning of this for us, our interest starts quite further down uh, in this area here where he starts talking about St. Nicodemus and his ideas about St. Nicodemus' position vis-a-vis -vis his own uh, book, The Rudder. And that's, what's, that's what we're going to discuss tonight. So that's, you can find those online. Uh, and if you want to go deeper and you want to read exactly what they're saying, we're going to quote a few things from them tonight. Not uh, uh, a ton. We're going to get the major points. And, and then we're going to talk about what the saints say. Uh, in addition tonight uh, to um, those two personalities, obviously, who are playing a part in our discussion, we have at the center is the great uh, Hagiorite St. Nicodemus. And of course, anyone who's familiar with our work over the years knows how much we love him and revere him. And we were so blessed in 2000, uh, well, over a number of years, 2006, 2007, 2008, to be uh, on the, the recipient end of the translation of our, our very good priest, Father George Dokus, who's in the Greek Arts Diocese. He translated this uh, book that you probably, most of you know about. Let's see if we can get a 
focus here. Uh, there we go. This is the, the Eximo Legitarian of St. Nicodemus, a manual of confession, which we published on Combatant Press. Uh, thanks be to God, we're bringing it back out. So many people write us and say, when's it coming back out? Very soon. It's it's ready. It's been laid out. But, you know, there's so many things going on at once that it takes forever just to get the pre press. But we're very excited. This will be coming out. We also, of course, have published two other books by St. Nicodemus on frequent confession, uh, frequent communion, rather, and his confession of faith. And God willing, will publish even more by the great saint. So we at Uncom Mountain Press Orthodox Ethos have great love and respect for St. Nicodemus. Uh, a few words about him for those who don't know who he is. Uh, I encourage you to read as much as you can about him and read his writings, uh, which have been so important for the church over the last 250 years, uh, especially in the Greek-speaking world. So he was born in 1749 in Naxos, Greece. He was possessed of a great acuteness of mind, accurate perception, intellectual brightness, and vast memory. He, his memory was just phenomenal. Uh, and of course, he didn't have access to any of our modern devices. So that served him very, very well in his work, which was the, he, he produced a ton of material in his, in his rather, you know, not very lengthy life. He was born in 1749 and reposed in 1809. So we're talking 60 years. Wasn't uh, that long of his life. He died fairly young comparatively to us today. And yet from in those 40 years of great production or even 35, he produced so much material. A lot of it was editing. A lot of it was, uh, let's say, um, translating and not literally translating from other language necessarily, but translating into a language and, a, and, a, and presenting in a way that the faithful could digest it and could have access to it. He was extremely pastoral in his approach, as all the saints are, as all the church fathers are. We don't have but just a few that we could say, I don't know if we could even say that, academic-oriented. All the church fathers were first and foremost of the church, in the church, and for the church, and for the faithful. And this is no, and St. Uh, Nicodemus is no exception. He passed from, uh, from the tutelage of his parish priest to that of Archimandrite Chrysanthos, who was, interestingly, uh, we forget how closely connected all the saints are, the brother of St. Cosmas Etelos, the great missionary to the enslaved people under the Ottomans, uh, the Greek people in, in Western, mainly all over Greece, but mainly in Western and Southern um, uh, Macedonia and Iperos and Southern Greece. He studied theology, studied ancient Greek, of course, Latin, French, and Italian at the evangelical school. This is the school in Smyrna. So he went, he went to Smyrna, crossed the way from Naxos, his time, his uh, home. Of course, Naxos is an island near uh, Paros, Naxos, Paros. They're right next to each other. And we have, for instance, from these islands, we have St. Uh, Joseph the Hesychist. We have uh, the Metropolitan uh, uh, of Florina. Augustinos, we have Saint Philotheos Zervakos, the great uh, confessor in, uh, of the faith in the 20th century. Uh, and then he returned to Naxos in 1770 due to the persecution from the Ottomans. Uh, not really sure the details of that. In 1775, so he was now what, age 21? Uh, and seven, in 1775, age 26, he becomes a monk at Dionysio Monastery on Manathos. He was initiated into the practice of Hesychia a method of prayer involving inner stillness and, of course, repetition of the Jesus prayer. This is the life of the monk of Manathos. Uh, 
it is important, although not essential, but it's extremely helpful if when we read the lives of the saints, we, we understand a little bit about their environment and their spiritual life. And so someone who's actually been to Manathos, spent time in Manathos, frequented Manathos, it helps tremendously to stand in, I think, proper awe and respect uh, for uh, the great saints because anyone who spent time in Manathos understands the tremendous spiritual climate that they live in and the 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 the, the amassed wisdom of all the holy fathers the experience in the spiritual life it's unparalleled and has been unparalleled for the orthodox church for hundreds and hundreds of years and so it's no small thing to become a monk of manathos and to be initiated into the practice of hesychia uh it is not unconnected to his greatness as a, as a church father as a writer as a defender and as a teacher it's a presupposition in many ways so different than our, our cold western academic mentality uh, that approaches theology like uh, any other discipline, uh, it, which is just a rationalistic uh, endeavor. Uh, no, uh, this is totally different. And he uh, quickly, within a few years, because right when he became a monk, uh, there was it was already going on, essentially, or about to be, uh, uh, let's say, uh, erupting. And that is the whole Kolivadis movement, the whole controversy surrounding the question of when do we pray uh, the, the memorial services. And of course, up until that point on Manathos, it had always been Saturday, but there is, I'm not going to get into the whole question of the, the, the controversy, the Koliva and all that on Manathos, but these were the, the, the most refined and most theologically astute monks of their time. And it's been proven over time because many of them became saints and are recognized as saints today. A huge movement that went on for quite some time. Um, even after the repose of, of the initial uh, monks uh, like St. Nicodemus and, and, and uh, St. Macarios of uh, Corinth, a retired bishop, um, or um, St. Athanasius of Paros, a uh, great saint as well. We're hoping on a command press to translate and publish some of his works as well. So he aligned himself with these monks who were persecuted in their day. We forget the saints are persecuted. If you look around today, you say, where are the saints? Where Who's being persecuted? That's probably where you're going to find uh, some saints. Uh, and this is the case in his time uh, when he was talking about frequent communion. It was, a, it was unfortunately, a scandal even for monks at Manathos. Uh, when he was talking against uh, uh, these innovations in worship, when he was talking against uh, the compromise with um, in terms of ecclesiology or in terms of the mysteries we're going to talk about tonight, all these things put him against the spirit of the world, as always. And so he was persecuted. And there were there were Kolivadi's fathers who were exiled from Manathos. He was not. He was not exiled. He spent the remainder of his life and had great respect uh, among many, many on Athos and elsewhere. Of course, he's, he became very well known through all of the, the books that were published through his work. Uh, he remained there in his keli. Uh, eventually, he went to Cardiès. He left the Onusia Monastery. He went to Cardiès, and he had a keli. And, and, and night and day, he translated and published those works. Uh, and original books, but also uh, he was an editor of many, many books. Now, we could go on and talk about his books for, for quite some time, but we're not going to do that. We're just giving you a little taste of who is the person, St. Nicodemus. He labored for restoration for the practice of the Saturday commemoration services, we, as we mentioned, for patristic ecclesiology and generally for synthesis of economy and strictness in the application of the canons. That's exactly what we're going to talk about tonight. 
economia que acrivia, and how that's understood. Uh, and he reposed in the Lord, as we said, on July 14th, that's his feast day, uh, and it was glorified in the Orthodox Church on May 31st, 1955. Now, we're going to jump right into the, um, into the controversy because we, we've got a lot to talk about. But as you'll see going on, we're going to talk also about St. Paisius Vendiskovsky, very important. Uh, and you'll hear the names of St. Athanasius Paros. So the Kolivadis fathers, this is what needs to be, the context is very important because there's statements here that we're going to see that just um, jar. I mean, they're jarring statements because they, they, they're so disconnected from the context of the Holy Fathers, the Kolivadis fathers and, and Athos. So it's extremely important to understand that the Kolivadis fathers were of one mind on the topic tonight. St. Athanasius Paros, stricter in many ways, um, uh, but of one mind. Uh, St. Pais Veliskovsky, uh, of one mind on the question that we're going to talk about tonight. And so it's, it's jarring when Professor Yango comes and says, as he did, and I remember this very well, and we had discussions uh, when he first came out. It would have been 2000, I want to say 2012 maybe, or even maybe six. I don't remember actually now. It's probably about that before... I think it was before the council in Crete, for sure. Uh, and he's published a number of things, so it's, it's hard for me to remember exactly the dates. But it's got, it's got to be about eight years. And, and so when he came out and said and wrote and said, oh, by the way, the St. Nicodemus that you know about and you read about in the Pedalion, in the rudder, that's actually not the real St. Nicodemus, okay? We've discovered the real St. Nicodemus. We have these manuscripts we found. They're unpublished. And we, I'm, I've, I've gone through them all, and I can tell you that that's not his position. He was not for rebaptism of the of the of the, of the uh, uh, papal Protestants, the Latins. He was not for even reordination. You know, everybody, every, I remember that very well. Everybody went, "What is he talking about? Who, what is what is this man talking about? Has he on what basis?" So we were extremely interested. Of course, I remember I was talking to Father Theodore Zeese at the time, and he said. Don't don't worry. It'll all come out in due time. And he, he said, let's see the text. He said, let's see the text. He's an old time, old timer. He knows not to get too worried. He knew who, who Yango was. He was a co-professor with him for years and years in the in the department. So, but people were, you know, kind of wondering what's going on. How could this be? So on what basis is Yango saying all this? Because this is obviously not what we see in the rudder, in his own book, right? He published uh, it was his book, right? It was his name on it. So there's so much to discuss here, and we're and this is why this is part one. But we're going to get just just into some major points, which are going to answer some of the questions raised by just two of the excerpts. Now these are excerpts I chose to take uh, the first two excerpts from Father John Cox's, uh, I guess, summary or analysis of Yangu's work and the question of Saint Nicodemus and the rudder. Because he succinctly states it. I actually think Father John, and you know, I'd love to have a discussion someday with Father John, that Father John just probably trusted a lot uh, in Professor Yangu and his position. And of course, I don't think Father John reads Greek. Maybe he does. But my guess is he doesn't because there's so much more in Greek. Uh, if one had access to the Greek, it would be really help him and assist him to see the thing. In a in a in a fuller context, and um, before I before I go on, actually, um, yeah, the text is not here, but it's it's uh, I've showed it to you before. Unfortunately, it's in the other room. Uh, this this 
800-page tome uh, of, uh, of all of the correspondence of St. Nicodemus and uh, Dorotheos Vulismas. This is what Professor Yangu had been talking about that he had access to and he had brought out. And, um, <clears throat> and it turns out that there were some other people who were doing the same research uh, from the monastery of uh, Panagia Chrysopodoritsa. I'm butchering that. Uh, the uh, Mother of God, the Monastery of the Mother of God of Ancient Monastery, just outside of Patra in southern Greece. Uh, I've been to the monastery. It's it's uh, it's uh, off limits to women. It's like a, it's like Manathos in that way, and it's very hesychastic. It's run by the abbot there, uh, Father Nicodemos, happens to have the same uh, name and the saint uh, Barusis, and he spoke. Uh, um, we spoke together uh, at the conference in two thousand and uh, what was it? Two thousand and four or three? Two thousand and uh, three, I can't remember now. It's the Conference on Ecumenism sponsored by the Department of Pastoral Theology at the University of Thessaloniki. He was one of the speakers. I met him then, and then we visited him at his monastery. And it's a tremendously great honor to have uh, stood side by side with, with uh, Elder Abbot Nicodemus. Now, he and his brotherhood have spent many years researching and publishing manuscripts by the Kolivadis fathers. They have studies on it, they have books on it, and they have their own um, critical editions. And so they came out last year with the, just an amazing work, amazing work, um, in which they have the correspondence, uh, of course, of St. Nicodemus and uh, uh, Theodoros. Vulismas, who we're going to talk about, who, who is Theodore Vulismas? Let's get to know him a little bit as well. Came out with that correspondence, but they, they didn't stop there. They had other letters that were pertinent to the whole discussion. So they have letters between Vulismas and St. Paisius Veliskovsky. They have letters uh, and between the saints and the patriarch, or the saints and others um, uh, like Athanasius Paros. And so you have a, you have a wide spectrum here. You can see the whole thing in context, right? And they brought about a, a lot of interesting information that I don't think, I don't think, I'm not sure, but I don't think Professor Yango had in mind, at least not all of it, because I don't think he would have come to his conclusions if he did. And so this came out about a year ago, and it was so wonderful to receive and to see. And these questions that had, had lingered in the back of my mind about Professor Yango's claims were thoroughly answered. They were thoroughly answered because we had in front of us the actual letters, finally, that he had talked about publishing for a long time. He just came out with them three months ago, finally, his own version, which I've ordered, and I look forward to reading. But we had this um, a year later, a year earlier, rather, uh, from uh, uh, Abbot Nicodemus. We're going to quote him uh, quite a bit tonight in his, in his commentary, his uh, footnotes uh, to the, to the, comment, to the uh, letters. And um, uh, so, uh, succinctly, I'm quoting a few things from Father John, which are basic, I think, based in, in agreement with uh, Professor Yangu. But you're going to see as we, get, as we go through this that there's big misunderstanding. Don't, they don't understand or they didn't see or he didn't see, Professor Yangu didn't see that the, he was not understanding, maybe misrepresenting the saint. 
So in that article that I mentioned earlier, there's a section on St. Nicodemus, and he says the following, Father John. Drawing on the tome of St. Cyril V. Now, I have to stop a lot because I'm assuming all of you, most of you, don't have a lot of knowledge of, of the historical context, the events that are going on there. So I want to make sure everybody's up to date. The great tome, the, the great uh, important tome of the 18th century on the question of the reception of Latins slash papal Protestants into the Orthodox Church by Cyril V and two other patriarchs, I think it was 1755-56, uh, is what he's referring to, uh, which, is, uh, which was a, um, a text that, of course, was controversial, certainly, because this is still a 300 years later, we're still having <laughs> a lot of discussion and controversy around this topic. It's not surprising it was controversial in his day. Uh, but he's saying uh, that Vulismas was drawing on this tome uh, in, a, in a discussion, in an exchange with St. Nicodemus. All right, so as you'll see, they uh, Professor Young, who prevents, uh, presents uh, uh, Theodos Vulismas as almost a um, someone that stands a against or across from St. Nicodemus, as someone who's not really a part of the Kolibadi's fathers, not really with them, not in agreement with them. That's certainly the implication of a lot of, of what I've read. And as you'll see, that's not at all the case. That's not at all the case. It's very clearly the opposite. They were of one mind, they were brothers, and they worked and they supported one another continually. And so there was not this 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 way, what's presented is oh, the patriarchate and the political machinations of the day and the desires of Neophytos, the patriarch uh, after uh, a few years after Cyril, who was dealing with the um, uh, question of, is the rudder, the book that of canons that St. Nicodemus produced, which is what uh, Vulismas is reviewing on behalf of the patriarchate, is it acceptable? Can it, can it be distributed to the faithful and to the, and to the church? Is it perfectly acceptable and, and according to the Orthodox faith? And so the, the Holy Synod asked, Vulismas, that's his last name, Vulismas, this, this uh, learned um, preacher and teacher of the faith, to review it on behalf and to report to them, okay, which he did for a number of texts, as we'll see. And so I don't, in my, in my reading of so far the correspondence, it's a huge text. I haven't read it, read it all. I don't really see him referring much at all to the tome of Cyril, Cyril V, uh, but let's just leave that aside for, for, for that's no, not really that important. Vulismas argued that St. Nicodemus must alter the text of the rudder, that's, that's the book of canons that he, he was producing for the sake of the church, the enlightenment of the people, in regard to his commentary on the reception of heretics and schismatics, specifically Roman Catholics, because in St. Nicodemus' original reading of the canonical tradition, laity converting from the RCC, the Roman Catholic Church, did not need to be rebaptized. And clergy coming from Rome did not need to be reordained. Okay, that's the statement by Father John Cox. I'm assuming, again, largely based on what they, he's read in the article that's been translated by Professor Yango. I could be correct, uh, mistaken. Maybe he does know Greek. Maybe he's read a lot. But in any case, that's in agreement with what we're seeing from Professor Yango and contemporary um, ecumenists for the most part. But is that the case? Is, is that the case? Is um, he talking about in this context when they're having this this friendly debate, basically an exchange for the sake of precision and, and understanding, is the question in that context where they have this exchange in their letters? Is it about papal mysteries? 
No, it's not. It's not about people misreading. You'll see, uh, and you'll understand that this is a total misreading of what was going on between, between the two men. Now, he goes on and he says other things. I'm just going to put that out there. They will go through and we'll talk about aspects of these, of these claims. St. Nicodemus' proposed reading, according, this is Father John Cox, again, writing in his uh, book review of my book. St. Nicodemus' proposed reading was entirely unacceptable to Vulismas. Entirely unacceptable. Not at all. They were in basic in, uh, agreement. It was details of just how far uh, one would go in their demands of criteria for economy. Uh, it's not, not at all true that they were entirely unacceptable to Vulismas. Quite the contrary. It was very few things. That were uh, that were at question, and there was a difference of, uh, of views on aspects of the question of a Caribbean economy, and not at all any disagreement on the basics. Whereas today, you have many in the West, especially, and I mean America and the English-speaking Orthodox world, who are who think that the uh, the 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 whole um, interpretive key of our pastoral practice in, with regard to the reception of uh, the heterodox, uh, that is the interpretive key of akrivi economia, which is given, it's given here in this discussion. No one questions this, that this is the interpretive key. In many cases in the West, you see people don't even accept it as an interpretive key. So they're not even beginning in the same place as St. Nicodemus, Vulismas, Paisios, but not just these great saints, the entire Greek world. No one to this day, if they're serious, doubts this. The discussion happens on this basis. Whereas, unfortunately, <laughs> tragically, Father George Florovsky, a great scholar, a great and tremendous scholar for the church who brought so much to so many people, he got this all wrong. And he rejected the interpretive key. That has never been doubted and is not doubted this day. If you can go and find patriarchal bishops in the 1970s, 80s, 90s, I think to this day, I mean, I, I would be very surprised if any of them have turned their back on this, but they're operating in this context and they're talking about mysteries in this context. Of course, the great, uh, one of the most important uh, uh, books uh, by the Bishop of Mira um, um, is on this basis. And on the question of the uh, mysteries of the of the papist or of the Latins. In any case, it goes on. In the end, Saint Nicodemus was compelled, compelled by Patriarch Neophytos, the Patriarch of the time, who was giving this job to Vulismas on the, on the part of the Ecumenical Patriarchate, to adjust the text of the rudder to the satisfaction of Vulismas. Okay, so what's presented here is that he's kind of a tyrant, and he says, either my way, the highway. It's either my reading of this or you don't get your book. Okay, that's what's presented by Sir Young. Uh, or it's not going to be printed. Okay, it's either, it's either Volismas's will uh, and our will or it doesn't get printed. And Father John goes on. Thus, the relevant portions of the final text, such as the commentary in Apostolic Canon 46, this is the, one of the most extensive uh, commentaries in the Pedalian on the question of heretical mysteries, heretical baptism in particular. Uh, and he has a parenthesis here, which was which canon was commonly and mistakenly believed to have actual apostolic authorship, uh, which, you know, forgive me, but it's totally irrelevant. 
if whether it has uh, it, for the sake of uh, of the church and it accepting it and embracing it in its consciousness for two thousand years or for thousands five or six hundred years, those canons have never been doubted as being of apostolic origin in the sense of being totally in agreement with the holy fathers and the uh, and the apostles, and whether it was written in the 4th century, the 1st century, the 3rd century, the 5th century, is irrelevant. But anyway, people like to point that out as somehow we should maybe, maybe we should have some doubts about the canons, uh, which, you know, canons that are accepted by ecumenical councils, we have no doubt about. But in any case, such as the commentary on Apostolic Canon 46, give no obvious intimation of the opinions apparently expressed in the early draft. So he's saying that it's Canon 46 in particular, but others apparently are are not found in earlier drafts. It's a totally different read. Is that true? We'll see in a minute. Uh, there's so it's as as if Vulismas imposed his opinions and his views on Saint Nicodemus, Saint Nicodemus, because he really wanted the book to get published. He just had to go along with it, which is not very flattering for Saint Nicodemus, uh, to say the least. He goes on, Father John, as such, when it comes to the question of baptism in general and the reception of Roman Catholics in particular, again, as if these discussions were particularly in first and foremost, in other words, the, the, the disagreements, right, the disagreements, as if they were about the papal Protestants and the Latins, that's not the case, but in any case, that's, that's the impl implication. Uh, commentary of the rudder bears the stamp of Vulismas' own theological convictions, not those of St. Nicodemus. I wonder if Father John and Professor Theodore Iangu, understand the implications of their words. They're basically saying that Father St. Nicodemus was not a principled man. And that, because he wanted to get his book published, and he wanted to get, you know, not have it sit on the, on the side, he was going to compromise on issues as fundamental as the boundaries of the church, the nature of the mysteries. Uh, as St. Nicodemus was that kind of man, it's certainly... We certainly don't have that image of St. Nicodemus. And that's why, again, it was so shocking for a lot of people to hear Father, uh, Professor Th uh, Yangu say, you know, whatever, eight years ago, I forget when it was, it's all been a mistake. It's actually, St. Nicodemus doesn't believe what he writes in his own book. In other words, it, was, it has his own name on it. Uh, it's, um, it's sad because you're impugning the... Uh, stance and the character of this great saint. Uh, and what kind of saint would do that? He, he would not do that. And he did not do that. That's the good news. He didn't do that. So let's find out what did he do. Now, I'm going to be quoting from Father Nicodemus Barusis, uh, and this is, of course, the book, uh, Icolivadis and Odorotheos Vulismas, uh, this massive collection of the right, of the of the uh, correspondence uh, of, of the Colivades and, and, uh, and Dorothy's Vulismas around the question mainly of the rudder, but also other issues, as you'll see. And again, I think we're, it's, it's wonderful that we can sit at the feet of this contemporary abbot and elder and very wise uh, spiritual father. So what does he have to say? Because he's addressing all these concerns of Professor Yangu, of course, it, without naming him. Well, he actually names him a few times, but it's implied uh, quite a quite a bit in, in the commentary in the in the uh, footnotes to these uh, exchanges, all the letters, and he says, the disagreement of the two sides regarding the issue of the priesthood and baptism of the heretics 
was an interpretive disagreement on the economia that was applied historically and not a pastoral disagreement on the economia to be applied in their own time. Okay, here's the distinction that I don't think Father John could have gotten because he didn't have access probably, but certainly I don't know why Professor Yangu doesn't get it. He was, they were talking about in those contexts, in those particular letters, about the historical application and the nature of economia and how it works. They were not talking about the contemporary question of papal slash Latin baptism. Okay. He goes on. That is, they disagreed as to what was the ex exact historical canonical background of the witness cases of economia. So in particular, we'll look at this, but I'll just want to, I'm going to restate this a few times. In particular, we're talking about certain instances like the Seventh Ecumenical Council. And what are the presuppositions? What are the back, what's the background? What, on what basis of the Holy Fathers, like St. Tarasios, say we're not going, we're going to receive these who've been charged and, 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 and have taught heresy. We're going to receive them without ordaining them or baptizing them. What were they? Were they condemned by an ecumenical council? Were they condemned by a council? Or were they not, never condemned? That's hugely important. And as you've heard me say many times here, that's one of the distinctions that the far right, I hate to say that phrase, it's not really accurate, but in any case, those who are among the zealots and the old calendarists, they don't get that distinction either. Why is it so? It's so important. So you have... Basically, the two uh, on the right and the left that are not following the royal path, they, don't, they both don't get this distinction. Why is this so important? Hugely important. This is where Vulismas is saying you've got to pay attention here. The implications are massive. All right, we're going to hopefully explain that tonight, but if we don't, we'll come back to it in future podcasts. So again, they disagreed as to what was the exact historical canonical background of the witness cases of economia and not as to what was the appropriate stance against the heretics of their time. Since, with regard to the burning issue of that time, the issue of the baptism and priesthood of the Latins and of the heretics that sprang from them, the positions of both Volismas and the Colivadis Colivadis fathers, as will be shown in, in, in the book he, he's talking early on in the um, commentary, Identical from the outset. You will be convinced tonight that they had a, the same exact position from the outset with documentation. And Volismas did zero to change that position of St. Nicodemus on the question of papal mysteries. Now, in, in the article by, translated into English by Professor Yangu, uh, we noticed a translation of a key excerpt from St. Nicodemus's letter to Vulismas. It's actually, I think, letter three. We have the translation we read there. And then we said, let's go look at the Greek. This translation seems really strange. seems odd. Uh, and we did our own translation from the Greek. And so we're going to read those two. And you're going to see the big difference and why it's very important uh, that it's retranslated in, Father, in Professor Yango's article. Now I don't know. I didn't. I didn't see his uh, his Greek article. I was looking at the English article, but this is actually from Saint Nicodemus. So they're translating Saint Nicodemus's letter here, and it's really butchered, unfortunately. So let's let's see it. It's important because anybody who's interested in researching this, they're going to want to see the proper and, and true uh, Greek represented. 
So does the church's sacred perfection, that is Dorotheos Vulismas, that's this is Saint Nicodemus, okay? He's answering, he's answering uh, uh, Father Dorotheos, uh, who was saying, look, you've got to pay attention here to these distinctions. When were these various heretics received without ordination, and when were they not received? And they had to be baptized or ordained again. There, there, there is a criteria, he says. Pay attention to the criteria. There's the criteria basically in two words is condemned or uncondemned. All right. And it's vastly important. That's the conciliar nature of the church and the conciliar implications of a conciliar decision are massive. Without those conciliar decisions, there is no authority to say that these are outside the church. So we have had many times, and we have today, heretics who are preaching from the amble. Heretics who are in the positions of the first bishops in local churches. They are teaching heresy. And yet, no one, even among those who don't understand this criteria or don't accept the criteria, will say that the ordinations or the mysteries before a synodical condemnation are not legitimate, are not acceptable. right? And they will not require them to be reordained if they, for instance, separate themselves from the church and then there's reconciliation. They can be received, of course, without being ordained. Just like we don't baptize somebody who's baptized in the Orthodox Church. We don't go and baptize them again. So this is the distinction they're talking about. Very important for the struggle against uh, the pan-heresy of ecumenism. Very important for understanding of when and how and what basic... You're going to hear me say this again and again. The whole question here is, what are the presuppositions? What is the, 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 the uh, criteria? What are the preconditions for doing this or that pastoral economia. They're, it's not a free-for-all. It's not whatever you like. And this is Vulismas very wise. I mean, it, it, instead of saying Vulismas was this implying and almost saying in, Professor Yangu was blind, well, this Vulismas was kind of a bad character who brought in this, this uh, fanatical, rigorous position and it was a politically driven nonsense, nonsense. Forgive me, Professor Yango, but it's nonsense what you're talking about. He was beloved of the saints. He was a uh, holy man himself. He was a teacher of the church. He was respected by the hierarchs. This whole, it's so sad to see this polarization and, and to, to sit now in the 21st century and to look back 250 years and to say, well, he was on this, he was driven by political considerations and they were actually driven by pastoral considerations is really unfortunate. It's really unfortunate because it divides unnecessarily those who are united, those who are united then and now. And so it's a divisive and and an unorthodox approach to understanding these men. They were beloved. So he says, Saint Nicodemus, so there's a church's sacred perfection. It's a beautiful term, I mean, of, uh, of flattery for, for Dorotheos Willismas want those heretics to be made to stand blameless. This is the translation that we found in the Yangu article. But that's not at all what it says. It doesn't say blameless. I'll read the, the full sentence on, on the left and the full sentence on the right. Whose ordinations and baptism the church once accepted by economy. Okay? In our translation, which we believe is closer to the Greek, so does her sacred perfection, her, the church's sacred perfection, there's no term ecclesia in the Greek, i.e. you, Vulismas, he's talking to Vulismas, St. Nicodemus, want those heretics whose ordinations and baptism the church once accepted by economia 
to have been uncondemned, unexcellenty, unexcellenty, without being, let's say, uh, I mean, condemned is one possible translation, but it's certainly without being checked, without being rejected, essentially, without being uh, judged uh, negatively. Uh, and so that's uh, one error. But the next one is really different. He goes, I'm going on in the left column now. And it says, and isn't the principle of economy sufficient to harmonize those holy fathers who were accepted? Total butchering of the Greek. It's not talking about holy fathers who were accepted. It's not talking about all about holy fathers who were accepted. With those who were not accepted, according to the principle of precision, what's the Greek say? And is the principle or of uh, should be of economia not sufficient to harmonize the Holy Fathers that accepted these things, not that were accepted. The Holy Fathers weren't accepted. The Holy Fathers were accepting these heretics or these on this basis, right? Uh, and the economia on this basis. Uh, the Holy Fathers that accepted these things with those that did not accept them according to the principle of exactitude. Forgive the typos. We're rushing to get everything ready tonight. Uh, so again, is the principle of economia, economia, what is it? I'm assuming a lot of knowledge, forgive me. The, the principle of economia is that the, that the uh, with a few words, my own words here, economia, what does it mean? The management of the household, ikos nomos, the law of the house, but it really refers to the manager and the management of the household of faith. All right. So we're talking about divine economy. This is the great economy, economia of salvation, the master, the Lord, and his plan and his management for our salvation. That's where we get the term economia. Now that's applied very rightly to the body of Christ, to Christ in the body of Christ through his shepherds working out like he did after we fell, right? The Kerivia would have been we stayed, Adam and Eve stayed in heaven, but they fell. So now he comes and he gives us the salvation in this setting of less than perfect, like we've fallen. Now the church does the same thing, goes into the world, the Lord, the Lord continues his incarnation. The Lord continues to walk through his church and guide his church and speak through his church, through his saints and through his uh, shepherds. And he is the manager of our salvation. Well, in this context, obviously the akrivia, the exactitude, is not always applicable because there's a variety of circumstances. And so it has to, there has to be the, the, the power and the authority and the, uh, the wisdom and the ability of the shepherd to apply the principles and apply the, uh, the, the solution of salvation in each case so that they might make progress in, in communion with God. And so obviously that's never can never be taken away from the church or the shepherds because it's Christ who's doing that, right? I mean, if if it's Christ, that's the question. Are these are these men in every age, these bishops, are they following the Holy Fathers and applying the economia and working out the salvation of the people? That should not be a given. It's not automatic. Every generation has those who do it and don't do it. Those who are heretics or schismatics or just unworthy and those who are worthy. So we always have to be vigilant. But this is the ideal. This is what the bishops and the priests are called to, to, to manage the household of faith and bring about. The great example, I think, that shows the economy of salvation and the akrivia of salvation in our Lord's own life is, of course, that he teaches on the one hand, you must be baptized. You must have faith and the, and the water of baptism to be saved. 
no comma in that context in that in the scriptures and yet he goes to the thief on the cross and he says today you'll be with me in paradise who was unbaptized you know according to the baptism of water but he was he was impossible for him to be baptized and so the economy of salvation the need is is great and the reason is 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 uh, based on the great confession of faith of the of the man and we have examples of those who were immediately uh, never baptized, but were immediately baptized in the blood of martyrdom. So that's the economy of salvation, right? The krivia and the economia. Now he says, question, rhetorical question, is the principle of economia not sufficient to harmonize the Holy Fathers that accepted these things with those that did not accept them according to the principle of exactitude? missing of in both cases all right different and it's 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 it can't you can't understand what the translation that was in the yangu article is saying it's totally uh, misunderstood the uh, the greek and then the great humility and love bless father let it be blessed that's a that's an athenite monastic term it's basically saying let it be blessed not of let it be blessed let them stand uncondemned according to your wisdom Right? He's deferring to Vulismas. He's not countering Vulismas. He's saying, my brother, my brother and co-struggler, I let it be blessed. I don't have a problem. I don't have a problem what you say. He's not, he doesn't have a problem because they're in agreement. Does he, in other words, does you, do you, because he's he's referring to him in the third person, do you? I'm reading from my translation here on the right. Do you desire that the canons not impede the uncondemned priests? In other words, the canons not stand in the way. And uh, and the, for them to be economized, bless Father. Let it be blessed. Let them not be stand. Uh, let them stand unimpeded. There's no there's no uh, obstacle for them. For such men, so he's not a, he's not nitpicking. He's certainly, but he's not opposing either. He doesn't have any problem with Vulismas criteria. And we're going to explain a little bit further exactly the criteria because they're very important. And he's. You're going to see that he was extremely wise and that what he feared is happening today. Pay attention. What he feared and what he was saying is saying, Nicodemus, if we don't pay attention to these, these, this, these real, this criteria and these presuppositions, there's a grave danger. We're going to talk about them in a second. What are the danger? We're living the danger. We're living the problems that Vulismas saw would come about if we don't pay attention uh, as shepherds of the church. But St. Nicodemus says, you know what? For me, I'm okay. I don't want to even argue about this. He says, for such matters are unworthy even of mention and contentiousness. I don't want to argue about these things. Since they're all, they're on their own, they are inferior and worthless. In other words, they're not the meat of the, of the matter, right? I'm not going to get bent out of shape on these. This interpretive key and exactly how you want to see it applied is acceptable. But it's not for me, it's not the most important thing. I'm not going to argue with you. Let it be blessed. That's what a monk does. That's what St. Nicodemus was saying here. And here we have Yangu presented it as him standing against Vulismas and then getting beat down by Vulismas. Oh, he had to accept this, this, this tyrant from Constantinople forced him to, to accept that which he doesn't believe, which is an insult. It's an insult to St. Nicodemus to say he doesn't believe this. All right. Now, some commentary here. This, 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 this date of this letter, by the way, is September 17th, 1792. All right, so this is toward the end of his writing, essentially, 
of the, um, the uh, preparing the book for uh, publication, but it has to go through a long uh, process of review. And then it unfortunately went through many years of practical problems before it could be uh, ultimately printed. Uh, so St. Nicodemus had explained cases of ordinations done by heretics being accepted by the fathers by saying this was done by economia. In other words, St. Nicodemus said, I don't have a problem just to say it's God's economy. Like, in other words, and it's very interesting because if you go to the canons that have to deal with the reception of converts, there is almost never what we say in Greek, etilogia, a reason given. They don't say, oh, in these particular, these particular heretics, we're going to receive them by resumation because, and then they cite some theological teaching they have. Whereas in contemporary orthodoxy, you find, especially in the Russian Orthodox world, unfortunately, you find this idea that, oh, we receive those who are closer to us by confession of faith and those who are further from us by baptism. Totally unsubstantiated in any consistent reading of the canons. And so that's, St. Nicodemus is saying, that's the spirit of the canons. We don't need to give an apology to anybody how we receive anyone. And if Christ is truly inspiring and guiding us, he didn't sit there and explain why and how he's going to receive the thief or the martyrs or why he rained down the Holy Spirit on Cornelius and then they baptized them. Like right? these things are in the economy of salvation. Right. So, so he's he's rather simplistic in a good way, right? Vulismas, however, thinks this is not enough. This is too uncertain. He wishes to clarify and emphasize that those ordinations which the fathers accepted by Economia were ordinations performed by heretics that had not yet been condemned, that had not yet been condemned. Those are the ones they accepted. In other words, he wishes to highlight the prerequisites and bounds and context of Economia, lest it become a, bead, a bed seed for innovation. That's my, that's my expression here. That's not his. And I think this is really wise. I think this is exactly what we're li living through. And Vulismas was extremely wise and, and perceptive, very bright, but also very experienced. Remember, as you're going to learn, he was very well read and also very well traveled. Very well traveled. He saw what he's talking about. He saw the pastoral reality on the ground. He went to the, all the Slavic, uh, many of the Slavic countries in the Balkans. He was in Bulgaria. He traveled. He preached. He taught. He knew what he was talking about. Now, there's a footnote from Elder uh, Nicodemus Barusis about this. I'm going to read it because it's very wise as well. Listen to what he says. Bless, Father, let them stand uncondemned. That's the, that's the section he's now, he's got a little uh, you know, footnote to. That's what we're talking about. He says, it seems that St. Nicodemus was favoring a more simplistic interpretation of the acceptance of the mysteries of the heretics by economia. He thought it sufficient to emphasize that economia is only applied in rare cases of urgent necessity, which, however, do not introduce a binding precedent, nor do they relativize the diachronic validity of the holy canons. All right. He thought it sufficient to emphasize that economia is only applied in rare cases of urgent necessity, which, however, do not introduce a binding precedent, nor do they relativize the diachronic validity of the holy canons. All right. So, in every case, whether you're talking about St. Nicodemus or Vulismas, that's certainly the case, right? Economia is rare, it's urgent, it's needful. There's no precedent set, 
this is oftentimes not understood by people today. Economia sets no precedent, zero. Nor do they relativize the diachronic validity of the holy canons. So he's saying, look, they cannot undermine the holy canons, period. I don't, it's not possible because of these reasons. All right. So St. Nicodemus is just kind of, it's simple, it's straightforward. So as soon as the particular circumstances that necessitated the application of economia pass away, the validity of the canonical exactly remains undiminished. Right? It, are we following here? This is getting too technical for you all. Forgive me. So it's very important because if you're following ecclesiastical events, if you're paying attention to what happens in many ways uh, in, in the Ukrainian schism or in the reception of converts or in the vesting of priests in Russia, this is all very relevant, right? This is extremely relevant to how we're going to, how the, the shepherds and the priests are going to guide and properly understand the guiding of the faithful. If you ignore these things, you will have, as you increasingly do, economia become the rule. Economia become the rule. And of course, that will undo the canons, undo the acrivia, and it will be very detrimental, certainly according to St. Nicodemus and St. and, and the Orthos Fulismas. Now he says, Dorothos Fulismas now. Okay, well, that's St. Nicodemus' uh, summary of what he's, his stance is. Dorothos Fulismas, however, considered that as much as simp as much as uh, such a simplistic version of economia may, be, may rightly emphasize the diachronic validity of the canonical exactitude. All right, so he's saying, yeah, this approach that you have, say Nicodemus, it does emphasize to a certain degree, and rightly, there is a exactitude. You're not, and he's very clear in his canon, his uh, uh, canon 46, his commentary. He's saying there's, you know, on the one hand, you have a Krivia, on the one hand, you have economia. This is how the church is governed. So that's fine. However, it inevitably leads to the offhand diachronic relativization thereof. All right. So inevitably, inevitably there's a problem. There's a relativization when we don't define the term, define the boundaries of economia. Because it does not point out the exact criterion of harmonizing the theology of the holy canons with their economia. So he's saying you don't want to go there and get into the nitty-gritty of history and say, in what case is this, what case is that? That's fine. You, you are definitely within the in the uh, the right interpretive key of economy and crivia, how we operate. However, there's this problem because you've got to show how theology and economia harmonize. Now, economia and crivia theology are going to harmonize, but they're not always going to be like a mathematical, you know, continuation, right? We'll talk about that because after the application, it's, it's going to be in the same spirit of always for the salvation of man and based on the gospel and based on the commandments and based on the canons. I'm not going to be against, I'm going to undermine that, right? So when you see, I'm getting ahead of myself, but to, to apply this, I think what, it, what he's saying is that if you become indifferent, to the nature of the baptism. What is a baptism? Of course, for the saints, St. Nicodemus, it means immersion. Well, let's be, that's not important. Right? It's just water. Saint, this is what Aquinas says, right? Quite Just water. And many Orthodox, unfortunately, are increasingly saying, just water. You can be immersed. You can be sprinkled. You can be poured. Not a problem. We're talking about without any kind of economia necessary, right? Well, when you do that, you've, you've now detached the... Economia from theology. 
You're saying you're no longer, there's no longer a basis for the economia. Like, economia on what basis? Well, as they all say, including St. Saint, Nicodemus, Saint there's got to be the immersion. There's got to be the type. There's got to be the form. They cannot abandon that among the heterodox. Otherwise, we're undermining what it means. We're undermining the very basis, the, 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 what it means to be baptized. We're undermining the mystery itself. And so we, we're no longer harmonizing theology and economia. That's my interpretation of what's going on. It's an application. But let's continue to hear uh, Elder Nicodemus and what he has to say. The lack of this criterion, according to Volesmas, leads to arbitrariness in the application of economia. Since the subjectiveness in evaluating every necessity, right? So I'm just a priest, I'm a bishop, and it's a subjective thing. Oh, I think it's necessary. Let's do economia. He says, this is just totally too subjective. It's going to become chaos. It's going to be, you know, we're going to lose, <laughs> lose ourselves here. There's not, they've, the bishops and priests and everyone has to have a, you know, some criteria and some boundaries to the economia, right? But if you just leave it up to everyone subjectively saying necessity here, necessity here, what happens? We're living that, brothers and sisters. We hear economia, economia, economia all the time. And it's anything but economia. It's anything but economia, all right? He goes on. Since the subjectiveness in evaluating every necessity and the consequent arbitrariness in the bounds of mitigation of exactitude gradually formulate a lawless custom. All right, so custom, he he saw what was going on in Eastern Europe. He was traveling around Eastern Europe. He was teaching and preaching, in, and he knew several languages, and he was going and he was talking to people, and he was seen, as you'll see later on. That's why St. Paisus loved him, and he, and he published his works. Because St. Paisus was fighting against heterodox ideas around the mystery of baptism. And they were seeing the erosion of the dogmatic consciousness of the people. Right? And he was saying, what happens is, over time, this arbitrariness leads to people, to the, the erosion of exactitude, this, the, the criteria of exactitude, and there's a custom, oh, this is how we do things in our village. This is how we do things in the Bulgarian Orthodox Church or the Russian Orthodox Church or whatever. That's how I've been doing it. We've been doing it for a thousand years, right? Oh, we did this from the time of Peter the Great. There are four, you know, and it's a, it's, it's on the level of a tradition, but it's not a holy tradition based. I'm, a, I'm talking theoretically, right? I'm not talking particularly about any particular practice. I'm just saying this is, he, this is what he's trying to say. He's trying to say this leaves too much room open for something to develop a practice which will then be basically elevated to a tradition, a what he's calling a custom in a negative sense, and it will undermine the akrivia of the church, which in practice, he goes on, which in practice substitutes the exact of the holy canons and deprives the pastoral condescension of the church of its sociologically necessary theological foundation. Brilliant, in my opinion, is brilliant. All right, this is hard for some of you. You're like, what is he talking about, right? And I know some of you out there, uh, look, you bear with me. We're going to go through a lot more, and we're going we're gonna to embed this. We're going to embed this, all right? We'll come back. Now, in the article, by the way, uh, my son brought me this. <laughs> he left it in the room. This is the book with all the correspondence. I've shown this before in the podcast. This is the book. Let's see if we can get it. Uh, I don't know. It's hard to, hard to see it, isn't it? Yeah. Anyway. All right, this is the book by Elder Nicodemus Barusis of the monastery of Chrysopodaritis. What are the Tisis? 
uh, not a good pronunciation. Sorry. Cox, Father John Cox, God bless you, Father John, for your, uh, your love of truth. Uh, you say, uh, and I'm repeating what we've already read, and I want you to listen to what Vulizma says. Then I want you to think, not just not just Father John, but all of us, think, is it accurate to say that St. Nicodemus was compelled by Patriarch Neophytos to adjust the text of the rudder to the satisfaction of Vulismas, or it would not be printed? Is that actually accurate? And what are the implications of that? It seems to me the implications are that basically, you know, it's like blackmail. <laughs> it's, are you? Are we saying that these men of the church were blackmailing St. Nicodemus? Were we saying that Vulismas, which was his brother in Christ and co-worker in many ways, would want to impose his total will on St. Nicodemus and not work with him? Let's see what they say in their letters. Let's see what they, their exchange is. Listen to this. This is Father de Rothos. My dear one, may God forgive you and enlighten you to cry out, Bless, Father, not in accordance with my own will. For my own is subject to various mistakes at various times, both in knowledge and in ignorance. Right? Remember the, what we read earlier. And that was the commentary of Father Nicodemus Barusis. And that was, was how he responded earlier. Bless, Father, bless, Father, you know, whatever you want. And he was saying, let it be blessed, uh, Father uh, Dorotheos, out of humility and love. And he says, uh, not in accordance with my own will, but rather in accordance with the infallible will of the Holy Church of our Christ. Likewise, may he forgive you as well for this great and ineffable mercy and enlighten me to speak and judge and write in accordance with this self-same mercy. For what I spoke, judged, wrote concerning your book given to me by his all holiness, the patriarch, it seemed good to me to speak and to judge and to write those things in accordance with this same mercy, speaking with great exactness about those things which are for you lowly and worthless. Remember, he said, these things are things I, we have to, we have to uh, argue about, right? He was saying that, these, this is not the meat and potatoes of this. this. I agree. Let it be blessed, he was saying. He's saying these things are worthy of great exactness, okay? And you say it's just lowly and worthy, but this is actually, I believe these things are great, and we must, you know, have the mercy of God in order for us to understand these things in, in with great exactness. So that the things both of exactitude and of economia may be both preserved invulnerable and confirmed by the church as you requested, now listen to this, as you requested, referring to a, apparently, according to Father uh, Nicodemus Barusis, in the existence of a missing epistle of St. Nicodemus, probably accompanying the manuscript of the writer that was sent for judgment. This is an important witness to the deeper intent of St. Nicodemus during the composition of the writer. His intent was with, uh, with not a constant support of economia, that, that was not his intent, his intent was not a constant support of economia, as some claim today, and he's referring here to Yangu. Okay, so Yangu presents it very, you know, one-sided. Nicodemus was he, he was for economia, economia, economia. No, that was not the intent of Saint Nicodemus, but rather the enshrinement both of exactitude and of canonical economia. All right, so as you requested, this is what we're doing. So you've already written me, and I'll, I'm telling you, this is what we got to do to keep the exactitude and the economia as invulnerable and confirmed by the church. So from the beginning, St. Nicodemus is on the same page with Volismas. 
These things, alas, custom, briefly canceled, and whoa, it holds invalidity as exacted. He, you know, when they write, this is difficult language, you know, very difficult language, and it's compact. It's got so much meaning in one, one sentence. These things, he's talking about, alas, custom, briefly canceled. All right, what are these things? The things of Akrivia and, and, and Economia. What's he saying? Custom, it's, it's a negative word for him. It's basically a, a theologically less and, and, and void of theological content practice, which is not in agreement with the Akrivia and of the canons and of the gospel. You see, in this custom, canceled briefly, and whoa, it holds invalidity as exactitude. It, it holds up something that's totally invalid as exactitude. Sound familiar? Sound familiar, folks? We're living through the same thing today. We're living through the same thing today. But since it did not seem so to you, as you exclaimed, do you wish at everything, and then adding, bless Father, it is clear that when you write this, it is not the things of the disposition serving you, but rather the things of violence, as if we were some violent men or tyrants or other young taskmasters, away with such barbaric savagery. So, Professor Yangu, your implications, he's answered them. St. Nicodemus, his dispositions have been answered. He's been, they are brothers in Christ. And he's saying, away with such an exchange where you think, or the implication is that I'm going to pressure you to do anything, right? So on the one hand, you have great humility of St. Nicodemus. On the other hand, you have great love of the exactitude of, of, of Father uh, Dorotheos. And together, with the Spirit of God and the judgment of the, all the brethren and the Holy Synod, you're going to find the path to a totally orthodox exposition of the question. Now, a footnote from Father Nicodemus here. The phrase of Ulusmas clearly shows that his intent was to persuade St. Nicodemus regarding the correctness of his critical observations, not to impose his own positions upon him. And by the way, this letter is dated March 24th, 1793. Uh, things took time back in those days to get back and forth. Now, Father Nicodemus ends this part of our discussion uh, for us, and then we're going to go on to some other things, talk about a little bit about Father um, uh, Dorotheos and who he was, very important, with the following comments. This book belongs to the church. That's the words of St. Nicodemus. This book belongs to the church. Needless to say, Father Nicodemus comments, in the hypothetical case, which we've rejected, that the published form of St. Nicodemus's comment on the 46th Apostolic Canon, that's the supposed comment that was forced upon him and it wasn't his own, was the product of a readjustment on the basis of the examination of the book by Vulismas, this would in no wise lessen its value. Okay, so even if Yangu is right, which he's not, it doesn't matter because why? It does not in any way lessen its value and the given authority of the rudder. So what we're interested in is the authority of the rudder, right? That's the most important thing because that book has been the foundation of so much for the last 200 years, and it still should be. It's the canons of the church and the commentary of the of the, of the the church, ultimately. Right? This belongs to the church. It doesn't belong to St. Nicodemus. It belongs to the church. And that's why it's submitted for review. It's not submitted for review because we have some kind of agenda. It's not like today's Constantinople, forgive me. It was a different Constantinople where you had saints still working and reviewing things uh, when they were sent to them. Let's go. Uh, it, 
the lesson is value and given authority of the rudder, since this precisely was the aim of its submission to the infallible criterion of the great church of Christ. In Christophorus' words, right? Christophorus was the author of the other text we're going to see tonight, the, the uh, collection of canons that he was producing, which is largely from the rudder itself. So that with her supreme authority, the church might judge it and confirm it, since this book belongs first to the church, St. Nicodemus's own words. So in such a hypothetical case, the views of St. Nicodemus being corrected, his own words would apply. Now we're going to apply the words of St. Nicodemus to the idea that he's being corrected and that this is not something that we should be at all uneasy about. Quote, it does not concern us what some of the fathers have said or thought, St. Nicodemus, but rather what says scripture and the ecumenical councils and the common view, the consensus patrum, the common view of the fathers. For a dogma is not constituted the opinion of some within the church, right? So the opinion of some does not make for the church dogma, but what the scriptures, the ecumenical councils, and the common view of the fathers. So even in the worst case scenario, which is not true, which we're going to show is not true very clearly, it is still an expression of the church. It's a book belongs to the church. Now, we've been talking a lot about Father Dorotheos Vulismas, and unfortunately, because of the, the, the words and, and writings of some, they consider him some kind of tyrant or villain or I don't know what. Let's learn about him a bit, and then we'll see how mistaken that view is. He was born in Ithaca in 1738, son of a priest with many children. All right, so it comes from a from a priestly family. He studied in Smyrna, as many did, exceptionally well-educated. His classmate and lifelong friend, this is very important, was Agapios Leonard, one of the authors of The Rudder. All right, so they were they were lifelong good friends. The one who was working with St. Nicodemus, the name, uh, 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 the authorship of the book of uh, uh, the Rudder, uh, the Badalian, the Book of Canons, is not just St. Nicodemus. It's also Agapios. All right, so he was lifelong friends. This is not some strange man they never heard about coming from the patriarchate with some agenda. This is a friend from childhood. All right, served the patriarchate of Jerusalem for over a year, and then he went to Constantinople. He was actually a cleric of the uh, the holy uh, uh, tomb of Christ, the Ayu Tafitiki of the Fotita. He was assigned the preacher of the great church, a, a wonderful position with a lot of authority and a lot of responsibility. He suffered from tuberculosis since the age of 33. All right, He died in 81. So for 52 years, he was an ascetic struggling against tuberculosis. Not a small thing. Traveled extensively throughout Greece, preaching to the people, much like St. Cosmas de Etolos. All right? Etolium. So he's imitating the saints. He's preaching, teaching throughout Greece. He's, and not just Greece. He went to Bulgaria. He went to Serbia. Suffered various persecutions and trials, as, much, uh, as many saints do, which he bore with exemplary patience. Was never discouraged or lost his zeal for founding schools and publishing books. Many times his books would not come to publication. He had... Many challenges, he never gave up. Struggled against the modernistic currents of his age to the end of his life. He was a confessor of the faith. He was a struggling against the erosions of the church life, secularism of his day. A friend and eminent churchman of the time, Nikiforos Theotokis and Evgenios uh, Vulgaris, 
famous and important intellectual of the ninth of the 18th century. And here's what I want to focus on: Saint Paisios Velitskovsky, who all highly esteemed him. Does, do, we, do we understand what that means? They all held him in high regard. Saint Paisios Velitskovsky loved him. He was going to become a monk in his monastery. He wanted to die with Saint Paisios up in Moldova, Moldavia. Lived his last days in poverty and much suffering due to old age and illness. He reposed. On April 3rd, 1819, at age 81, his dying words were, the noble Joseph taking down an immaculate body down from the tree. All right. His relationship now with the Kolivadi's fathers often cooperated and collaborated with them. So with St. Makarios Notaris, St. Athanasius of Paros, St. Nikiforos of Chios, Christophoros Prodromitis, the author of the other canonical texts we're going to see, and St. Nicodemus Hagerite. So again, this idea that he was shouting down commands as some, uh, you know, some political uh, ex extension of some political agenda in Constantinople is absurd. It's absurd. Highly esteemed the hesychastic the life, had a desire to live out the last, day of his, uh, last years of his life, either with St. Nicodemus or with St. Paisus in Niamps. St. Athanasius of Paros and St. Makarios Noteros supported Vulismas in his struggle against the Greek Enlightenment, which means essentially Western secularization, uh, intellectual and otherwise, in Greece at the time. So this is not a man who's outside the circles or in any way opposed, in any, any way opposed to the Kolivadis fathers and their whole, their whole work. So as one of many, because this book is massive, right? what are we, what, how many pages were, was the book? I forget. Uh, a thousand fifty pages. All right, so it's going to be maybe three parts or four parts before we get through all the points that need to be made from this book. Vulismas's treatise. Now, Vulismas wrote a treatise, a spudasma, on this question. Right, he wasn't just somebody who had some points to make. He wrote a whole treatise on it. Like he was well versed. Saint Nicodemus was did well to listen to him. <laughs> he, he was not somebody who just passed by. And, 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 and thought for, for a week or two about this topic. And it was called a treatise regarding the need to baptize heretics that have been, not been baptized in accordance with each of the Lord's commandments. That is both the one before the resurrection and the one after the resurrection. That's the title of the book. They always had long titles back in the day. If God wills, and we have the, the right translator, we will translate this and publish this one day. I don't know when. We've got a lot of projects, but it will come out eventually. Now, it is in total agreement with St. Paisios. And listen to what, how do we know all this? St. Paisios Veloskovsky, one of the greatest saints of the last 300 years. Rejuvenate, you know, you must know about St. Paisios. If you don't, look him up. It's worthy of your time. I wish Father Seraphim Rose's uh, life uh, from St. Herman of Alaska was still in circulation. It's worth, everybody should be reading it. Hugely important saint, St. Paisios Veloskovsky. Of course, the great uh, renewer of the hesychastic uh, uh, movement in all of the Slavic lands, uh, and um, the conveyor of the whole tradition, uh, himself a massive and uh, towering figure of, of monastic life in, uh, in, in, in Romania. Let's see now. This text, this treatise, proves that triple immersion is a necessary prerequisite for the acceptance of the baptism of the schismatics or heretics by economia, right? By economia. 
If a convert can be accepted with chrismation alone, only uh, without baptism, only if he was immersed by triple immersion by the heterox. That, that, that's what that means. In other words, when people talk about katikonomia and they, we recognize or we accept a baptism, it's always in this context. It's talking about the actual physical side of the mystery. The, the, there's no way it can be interpreted as a spiritual content in the heretical or heterodox mysteries. It's totally opposed to the Orthodox ecclesiology. It's impossible for us to think in terms of a mystery outside the mystery. Our whole ecclesiology from St. Basil, St. Cyprian, St. Basil, all the way down, certainly to the Athenite Fathers to this day, is in that context. This idea, by the way, it's a whole other podcast someday, this idea that St. Cyprian's ecclesiology in its basic form is not the ecclesiology of the Orthodox Church also needs to be refuted. It's uh, baseless. Uh, the application, of course, in, needs to be discussed why and how and when. But the basic core is repeated again and again and again. It's the given. It's in St. Paul's teachings. It's in St. Ignatius' teachings. It's the given. But that's another podcast. So in this treatise, the, the arguments to the contrary are systematically refuted, all right? And this was written before the examination of the rudder. So Saint, so uh, Father Dorotheos wrote this before he took the rudder into his hands, uh, this text. And so again, he's saying there is presupposition for economia. It is that they must be triple immersed. They must maintain the form. In other words, they must be baptized. In other, we're talking about the physical side of the mystery. So it, this came out, he wrote this on the occasion of basically three things. The controversy regarding the baptism of the Latins, not just because the Latins and the Orthodox, uh, between the, or, uh, us and the Latins, but also between us and the Latin-minded. Right? So he's writing this because there are Latin-minded people in his day who are mistaken about this topic. Also, Vulismas noted in his missionary journeys in both Greek and Slavic-speaking lands Many Orthodox clergymen were not baptizing properly, still aren't in many places, because of ignorance and the papist propaganda. So again, pastorally he's driven, as was St. Paisios, and, and that's why they collaborated so, so well. And there was a third, more specific reason that had to do with St. Paisios Vyskovsky. While the practice of the Russian church since the time that time was to accept the Latins and the Protestants by chrismation alone, by economia, St. Paisios, on the contrary, would baptize Lutherans, Calvinists, Papists, and Unions, since they have not a single immersion coming as ones wholly unbaptized. All right, so St. Paisios, who was like a spiritual father to him, and he, again, was considering uh, before he got sick to run and end his life at the monastery with St. Paisios, leave the Patriarchate and go live in the mountains with St. Paisios. St. Paisios wanted him to write this. St. Paisios wanted to hit support in his... Uh, uh, insistence on uh, reception by baptism for all of the um, uh, units and the <clears throat> others coming to him in uh, Romania. Troubled by the inconsistency of the various local churches in their manner of receiving converts, St. Paisios asked Father Dorotheus Vulismas to write a treatise on the need to baptize the Latins. Vulismas wrote this treatise and sent it to Niamps. St. Paisios was so excited by this work that he had some of his disciples translated into Romanian immediately. It was at the end of his life. It was almost on his deathbed. And it was distributed widely, bringing about the desired effect. This is now a quote from essentially a summary of what 
Father uh, Nicodemus Barusis says in the book. We have wonderful material also about St. Paisios. All right, so that is not insignificant. You might say, well, that's St. Paisios. But this is, this is who Volus Mas was. He was a disciple and a friend of the saints, and the saints were all in agreement. Now, we come to something very important, because the claim here is that Vulismas changed the mind of Nicodemus or forced him to change his mind, and he ended up writing what he wrote in the rudder, not because he believed it, but because he wanted to get his book published, right? If that was the case, before Vulismas, Father Dorothios, came and started the exchange with St. Nicodemus, we would have seen, in earlier versions, a different picture, right? We would have seen a different picture. Because Vulismas got the book after it had been written. So in the earlier manuscripts, which we have, essentially, we have almost the entire manuscript in, as you'll see in a, in a minute, in many, many passages, we see that he had the same view as in the rudder in the final form, which totally disproves Professor Yango's ideas about St. Nicodemus. So there is another book called the Canonicon, all right? It, his good friend, St. Nicodemus' good friend, Christophoros Prodromitis, helped him when the latter was composing his, uh, his Canonicon, all right? St. Nicodemus helped Christophoros to compose his own collection of canons and, and, and text on the canons. And when the publication of the Rudder was being delayed, St. Nicodemus generously gave to Christophoros much material from his own yet unpublished Rudder to enrich his Canonicon with it. All right, so we have how much, just how much? Many parallel passages between the Rudder and the Canonicon. There are many, many. Of the 1,304 interpretive comments of Christophoros in his Canonicon, more than 900 are taken from the Rudder. Essentially, this is the same book. It's like, 70, 80% the same book, all right? Uh, whether they're entirely or loosely uh, 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 or, or abridged, right? They're in there in the same sentiment. According to Yangu himself, in the publication of the Conan this method of working on the part of Christophorus is useful, in our opinion, in discovering the positions that St. Nicodemus first formulated. So Yangu himself says, we can see what St. Nicodemus really believed, in those passages. In other words, by comparing the passages in our published version of the rudder with their equivalents in the Canonicon, we can determine what the positions of these two fathers were before the examination of Vulismas. This is because the original manuscript of the Canonicon is still extant in the library of St. Pantalemos Monastery in Manathos. So regarding the baptism of the Latins, the comment on the 46th apostolic canon in the Canonicon is entirely dependent on its equivalent in the rudder. What does that mean? It's the same views, same <laughs> text, same ideas. St. Nicodemus didn't change his basic views about what? About the papal baptism, right? Because we said earlier, there, the problem was not in the contemporary pastoral problems. They were in total agreement. The problem was about the criteria then in the ancient church, the application they totally agreed on. And even the, the problem they had is, is very minor in the grand scheme of things, right? The, the small disagreement that they had. Now, let's actually see two excerpts which shows the total agreement of the Canonicon and the Rudder, which means that the views of St. Nicodemus were consistent. So we read from the Canonicon. 
Furthermore, as many heretics as were not preserving the kind or the material or the manner of the kind or the material in the baptism, see uh, the note on the 50th apostolic, those ones, the fathers of the councils, prescribed that they be baptized. All right? So this is St. Nicodemus. Vulusmas does not use this language at all. He actually doesn't agree with this reference to kind and material and, and, and this kind of thing. The question of uh, ili, as we said earlier here, right? The question of uh, ili, idos, these are the Greek terms. Uh, Vulusmas is actually critical of using these terms, but it doesn't matter because St. <laughs> Nicodemus stuck to those terms and used them in and their parent in the Canonicon and in the rudder. Uh, deduce then, now this is the canonicon, right? Deduce then from those things when it is already not the time for economia, right? So, so he's saying, look, from these things you can see here, there's when do we not use economia, right? There is a time when you cannot and you should not use economia. This is one of the myths going on today. Like, oh, it's whatever we want to do. Anytime economia. It doesn't matter the presuppositions. There are no presuppositions, right? If the priest wants it, if the bishop decides it, let it be blessed. You know, that's not accurate. The saints are saying, no, there's a time when you should not use economia. Absolutely off limits. So he says, deduce from this, what I'm talking to you above. The, 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 the uh, fathers of the councils prescribe that they be baptized in these cases when these things are missing. They've not preserved the kind, the material, or the manner. And he says, deduce from these things when it is already not the time for economia and the manner of the material is not kept and they are heretics. What is to be done? All right, so that's the canonical. Now let's go to the rudder and see, is there any difference? Is there like a different opinion presented in the rudder? And those heretics whose baptism the councils did not accept counterfeited the ceremony of baptism and corrupted either the manner of the kind, that is to say of the invocations, or the usage of the material, that is to say of the immersions and immersions. Same sentiment. Those things cannot be corrupted. They'll, only when that is the case is there a katikonomia, acceptance or, uh, uh, of the form of baptism, and therefore they don't need to repeat that form. They can be received in the church without repetition of the form, of the, of the external uh, ceremony, right? When they don't corrupt it, that's the only time economia is permissible. And he goes on. Concerning now, he's applying it now. That's the theoretical. Now he applies it to the Latins. This is in the rudder. Concerning the Latin's baptism, since economia has passed away, just like he says there, not the time for economia, same sentiment, because they do not keep the three immersions. Again, the manner is not kept. Material is not kept. They corrupted the uses of the material. And as, as heretics, they are not able to perfect the baptism. And they are heretics, right? Same exact sentiments in both texts. One before Vulismas, the other one after the approval of, uh, uh, of the uh, patriarchate. Uh, and therefore, the baptism of the Latins is not acceptable. Same exact sentiment. Now, Elder Nicodemus, about these parallel passages, listen to what he has to say, Elder Nicodemus Barusis. The last two excerpts from the comments of Christophoros, quote, furthermore, as many heretics, what is to be done, etc., in, in that passage, and their equivalents in the rudder prove incontrovertibly that the two Colivadis fathers, St. Nicodemus and Christophoros, in their works, original form as well, before the examination by Vulismas, rejected the application of economia in the case of the Latins, taking their stand clearly in favor of their re-baptism, their baptism. We don't do baptisms twice, but that's a term that's been 
accepted in certain places. That the positions of the rudder regarding the need to baptize the Latins belong originally to St. Nicodemus and were not introduced later under Vulismas' influence is also proven by the examination of the latter. The examination was the term used by his paper, what his report, let's say. Wherein, among other things, he notes the interpreter, St. Nicodemus, in the footnotes of the 46th canon of the apostles, refuting the baptism of the Latins, both by reason of exactitude and by that of economia. Pay attention here. Vulismas found this upon examination of the rudder. That was already there. Before he began to examine, he said, I found this there. The interpreter has stated this. St. Nicodemus stated this. This wasn't Vulismas' imposition. That, that, that interpretation is all St. Nicodemus. Father Barusus continues, Indeed, the particulars that St. Nicodemus lists in his comment in question constitute the opinion that the baptism of the Latins is a baptism falsely so-called, and therefore it is acceptable neither by reason of exactitude nor by the reason of economia. All right? Certainly by exactitude, of course, they're going to be baptized. But can they be received by economia? Are the presuppositions present? No. They're not, according to St. Nicodemus, according to Vulis Mas, according to St. Paisios, according to St. Athanasius, according, according, according. And if we also take into account the pervasive use of the terms material and kind in the comment, the use of which did not find Vulis Mas in agreement. So we have something that St. Nicodemus uses in his commentary, which Vulis Mas did not agree to. So this idea that he's a tyrant and he wants total control and he wants all everything to be changed before he signs off on it, is false. He left that in, even though he didn't agree with it. And also the preservation of the controversial point, which in his examination, Vulismas judged should be corrected, right? We're going to talk about this in a second. Then we are able to support with certainty that the published uh, very extensive comment, very extensive comment of the rudder in the 46th epistolic comment is identical with its original manuscript form and absolutely expresses the mindset of Satan and Kodimus. There's no doubt that Yangu got it wrong. Very wrong. He did not understand what he was reading or something. I don't know how this, I don't know what it expressed. I mean, this is this is so much evidence. Maybe he didn't see this evidence. I don't know. I hope that in his text, I'm looking forward to seeing his text. I ordered it to be sent to me to see what he says about these things. Let's see what kind of interpretation he gives. But I'm not going to hold my breath because there's overwhelming evidence here that Satan and Kodimus did not change and that he was in a total agreement with all the other saints, including St. Paisus and all the rest. Now, he continues, Elder Nicodemus, the editor of this um, uh, of this collection of letters that we have all the information about the uh, views. This mindset of the saint is confirmed also by his well-known epistle, September 1806, to the Ecumenical Patriarch, St. Gregory V. Now, this is just the last, you know, toward the end of his life, right? He dies in 1809. He has not changed one iota his views from 1790, right? So here he says, uh, in which he writes St. Gregory V, and he says, uh, beseeching him to send a converted Uniate monk from Hungary to the spiritual father of the monastery of Pantocrator, Papa Gregory the Vlach, so that he might catechize and baptize him because he was baptized or rather de-baptized and defiled by the Latin's defilement. Okay, so Saint Nicodemus writes the patriarch, fifth, the fifth, the great, the, the, the holy higher martyr, in 1806. He's on his way to become 
patriarch, second time, I think. And he begs him to baptize a unit. So unions usually would baptize in Orthodox form. He said, uh, no, we're not even accepting union. He said, baptize him. And he receives a positive response from St. Gregory V, of course. We'll see that in a second. This, this is the constant view of St. Nicodemus in favor of the baptism of the Latins. It proves also that what was his stance towards the acceptance by economia of their priesthood. So this is another question that's come out. And this is something that's very relevant to our day. So relevant to what's going on in the Ukraine. You're going to say to me, Father, this is so, you know, I can't follow. This is all so relevant, brothers and sisters, to what they did in the Ukraine. They're trying to create the academic and scholarly apparatus to say it doesn't matter the presuppositions for economia. It's a free-for-all, folks, whatever the bishop says. Not true. Not the saints. The saints didn't teach this. Now, listen to this. These are all, it's very much calculated for our contemporary. This is what happens. Academics who are in the service of ecumenism are given a task. Support our decision X. Find grounds for supporting our decision in this acceptance of the schismatic Ukrainians. And uh, and then they, uh, this is well known. I mean, uh, professor uh, of ecclesiastical history, um, uh, oh, his name just escaped me as I'm sitting here. Fidas, yes, thank you. Fidas, uh, well known for, 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 for accepting the, uh, you know, the request of the patriarchate and fulfilling them in, in supporting whatever practice uh, or, or move they, they, they were engaged at the time. And I'm, I'm afraid that this might be the case here because it doesn't add up. Uh, actually, Professor Yangu's position uh, on the uh, question of the canonicon of uh, Christophoros in 2008 is very different than his position in 2016. Uh, and that's something we can talk about in the future uh, podcasts. Uh, so it seems like things drastically change for Professor Yangu as well. And I'm not sure why. So continuing on, the question of the priesthood of heretics, right? What do we do with the priesthood? Because this was also a claim that not only the baptism was the St. Nicodemus, remember the claim up at, up at the top, what Father Cox repeated from, I think, Father uh, uh, Professor Yangu, that not only did he say no problem, economia for the baptism, but also for the priesthood. So let's see, what, what is that possible? What did St. Nicodemus say about that question, right? Uh, although he did not incorporate into the rudder the distinction between condemned and uncondemned heretics, that was Vulismas's uh, position and desire, and I think it actually is proven to be very wise uh, in our day uh, and important distinction. Uh, but in any case, even without the distinction, St. Nicodemus has a different solution for the same problem. Uh, as a criterion of the acceptance by economia of their priesthood, all right, perhaps lest he fall into the inevitable non sequitur of Vulismas regarding uh, the Latins. Okay, we won't address that, but uh, in any case, it's a speculation why exactly St. Nicodemus did it. Maybe that's the case. Nevertheless, he sets forth the criterion of baptism as a prerequisite for the acceptance of their priesthood. So he says, if the church accepts the baptism, in other words, accepts, does not repeat the form, accepts it because it's been maintained in its, in its fullness, right? The mystery has not been undermined in, in its form. Well, then it can also uh, consider and on that, that's a presupposition, a prerequisite for them to consider the acceptance 
uh, and not reordaining them, as we have some cases in church history. But again, according to Vula's Mas, and I think he's right, and there's other a lot of evidence to point that he's right, that, for instance, at the Seventh Ecumenical Council, they received the iconoclast bishops without ordaining them because they were never condemned by a synod. They were never condemned by a synod in the Seventh Ecumenical Council. So essentially, they were part of the church, or they had never lost uh, synodically, uh, they've never been condemned and lost the ordination. So, uh, in any case, uh, for St. Nicodemus, it's impossible to accept the idea that we can receive someone's priesthood if we don't accept their baptism. So, he emphasizes, St. Nicodemus emphasizes, the iconoclasts and all the other heretics whose ordinations the church once accepted, again, by economy, they accepted them because they'd not been condemned according to uh, Vulismas' approach, I think he's right, by economia and condescension, and not by exactitude, these, I say, had been baptized properly and in accordance with the form or type of the church. So for St. Nicodemus, that's a presupposition for receptance, uh, acceptance of their priesthood and without ordaining them again. Therefore, also, just as the church accepted their baptism, thus in turn she accepted also their ordinations. The Latins, however, and those from them, and all those such groups are not properly baptized. Therefore, also, just as the Church of Christ does not accept their baptism, which is the first of the mysteries, much more so she does not accept their ordinations. This is, by the way, forgive me, the exact opposite of what some clerics, very high clerics, are saying today is the practice in uh, a Slavic church where they're doing a practice which is only done in that church and not in the Greek world at all. So the exact opposite position of St. Nicodemus is, is, is being carried out uh, in very high-profile ways in the Orthodox Church today. Very relevant. What we're talking to you about is very relevant to the life of the church right now all over the Orthodox Church. And he, and he finishes, For this reason, it is necessary that they also be baptized and ordained by Orthodox priests and hierarchs. And, of course, that's what's happened for the most part, uh, in the Greek world, up until recently, until the age of ecumenism, that's what was going on. Now, we're almost finished. Two more, and we're done, and we can open up to questions. So if you have questions, this is the time to collect them, John, uh, or submit them over in Crowdcast. If you have questions, go over there to the box, ask a question. Uh, if not, that's fine. It's a diff difficult subject. Not everybody's going to have a question. Uh, you want to digest it. but um, I'd be happy to, to entertain your question. So, six, now, if St. Nicodemus had been so influenced by Vulismas, certainly he would, um, he would uh, in, in, canon, in Canon 46. What about all the other references? We have tons of other references in the rudder. Uh, in fact, he was anxious. He was anxious to make sure his readers understand, understood, and remembered, and he would also lose no opportunity of returning and driving home the same point, that the Latin's baptism is not a baptism immersion at all, right? We're talking about the actual mystery. It's not, it's not, it doesn't mean baptism. It's not an immersion. This was really important for the saints. Might not, we might not understand why this is important today because, frankly, we're infected by a kind of lax, 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 lax attitude toward the actual mystery. We're infected by legalism. We're infected by a uh, approach to the mysteries which is not in the same uh, spirit and ethos as the saints. 
so that the Latin's baptism is not a baptism at all, but only sprinkling or pouring, that the converts from, that's my addition, that the converts from the Latins need to be baptized, not rebaptized, for they were never baptized, that if the heretics that baptized with one immersion were to be received by baptism, how much more, this is St. Nicodemus' point again and again, how much more so that those that baptize with no immersion, the Latins, so, Elder uh, Abbot uh, Nicodemus Barusso's comments, and he says, So, because St. Nicodemus foresaw the possible consequences of what the unpaid defenders of the Latin pseudo-baptism were promoting, all right, he foresaw the possible consequences of what the unpaid defenders of the Latin pseudo-baptism were promoting. For this reason, while composing the rudder, he would return in season and out of season to the topic of the baptism of the Latins. Despite his extensive comment in 40, 46 apostolic canon. So I mean, he's got a massive comment in 46. And yet he goes in all these other examples, which we're going to see right now. So as to consolidate in his reader, the consciousness, the dogmatic consciousness of the necessity of their baptism and to halt the invigorated pro-Latin current of the Latin-minded Orthodox. So besides his extensive comment in 46, we also see seven other references in this subject in the rudder. 47th Apostolic, 50th Apostolic, 7th Canon of the Second Ecumenical, on page 305 in the Greek, 582, 589, and 618, all in the Greek version. So is it possible that Vulismas went through the entire rudder and every single instance he tweaked it, he perverted it, he distorted it, and St. Nicodemus said, oh, well, I just want to get my book published, I guess. Is that You think that's what happened? I don't think so. Now, before we close, I want you to see the actual letter. It's very interesting. From St. Nicodemus to Patriarch Gregory V. And with that, we'll close. And I think this is a pastoral call to all those who want to imitate the saints. This is a pastoral call to all those who want to imitate the saints to follow St. Nicodemus and to follow St. Gregory. You're a hierarch. You're a higher monk. You're a priest. This is what you do. This is what you do. If he did, if they want, if St. Nicodemus did it, 250 some odd years ago, 200 years ago. Well, how much more today when we have a dissolution, which is far, far greater, uh, and a pastoral need, which is far, far greater to, in the age of ecumenism, to shore up the boundaries of the church, to shore up the identity of the church, to bring people in and give them the right foundation and many, many, many other reasons. But here's what he says. My... All holy, most divine, and worshipful master, the Lord and ecumenical patriarch. The carrier of this mine epistle, being by descent from Hungary and by being baptized, or rather, debaptized and defiled by the Latin's defilement, comes through me to your all holy pate, personage, your father, ardently seeking that he be baptized by the Orthodox baptism, by our baptism of the Eastern Church of Christ. Okay. So, clearly saying there is no baptism, he needs to be received only through baptism. There's no options here. Therefore, we beseech both he and I, your Christ imitating apostolic heart, that by a brief command of yours, ye send the aforementioned unmonkish and uninitiated monk. Okay, he's talking about the uniot. He's talking about a uniot here. He's not talking about a Latin. They baptize. They have, you know, looks like a monastic life, something they're trying to imitate the Orthodox. He's saying they're unmonkish and uninitiated, defiled by the Latin baptism, 
to the Vlach Papa Gregory, the spiritual father at the monastery of Pantocrator, so that he, as his fellow countrymen and speaker of the same language, may initiate and give rebirth to him through the Orthodox, sorry, the typo again, Orthodox baptism, so that both he and I may more extensively pray to God that along with all of the other salvific thoughts, he may enjoy an, uh, an uh, auspicious voyage and, may and be prospered along the way to your ecumenical throne. He's, he's leaving Athos and he's going to become the Patriarch of Constantinople at this time and accomplish imitations a second time now and accomplish imitations of the good under the common benefit of the whole Christian people. Your prayers and treating, I remain uh, proclaimed, the least of your slaves, Nicodemus. And he responds, we pray, Sir Nicodemus, on our behalf, act out on our behalf, act out what you have written. Do what you have said. Patriarch of Constantinople Gregory. Okay, These are the archives of the Aviron Monastery in Manathos. This is the end of part one. Um, and you have seen, I think, I hope, conclusive uh, rebuttal of the idea. I repeat again, the idea, which is not borne out in the text, not borne out in what we know about the saint, about Vulismas, about St. Paisios, about the rudder, everything here, all of the evidence points to a grave uh, error on the part of the professor, and it should not be repeated in the English language. I hope that Father John will consider striking that from his article after he sees all this evidence and see that, in fact, there is no grounds for doubting St. Nicodemus's uh, ecclesiology and position on Latin baptism. So tonight we showed conclusively that St. Nicodemus held the same position as Vulismas with very little difference, and it was basically in on what criteria we're going to, and, and how we're going to explain uh, essentially the decision of the church and the ancient church to do economy. Right? What is What are the criteria of economy? That's essentially the only part. And we saw out of his great humility that he wasn't forced, but he willfully and gladly said, I don't want to, I don't have any problem with this. I don't, he didn't say, oh, this is terrible. I don't have any problem with this. Let it be blessed out of his humility. And he did not go, uh, you know, against the, the suggestions. He actually doubled down in their application today in many ways. Uh, but he had his own view, and he, as we saw, uh, rejected the Latin baptism and therefore also the Latin um, ordinations. There's no doubt about that in many cases until the end of his life with St. Gregory V. So hopefully this will put an end to this delusion, and we can focus in, on following the Holy Fathers and following the saints and not uh, innovating. <laughs> Oh,